Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Radio, the voice of the end. We're having some technical issues with the music this morning. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, episode number 76. For Friday, April 4th, 2008. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man, and here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, is the wingman, Chris Boisel. My co-host, radio... There you go. At least the aircraft's working this morning. Uh, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, and Indoor Environment Connections publisher and What's News segment reporter, Glenn Fellman, won't be talking with us today because they're going to be talking to each other and the other members and staff at the IAQ uh, association board meeting this morning. Our goals at IQ Radio are to be interesting, informative, and entertaining. On IQ Radio, you hear the views and the opinions of the hosts and the guests. You can contact me at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. You can contact Radio Joe Hughes by emailing to him at joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments include the microband trivia questions, an interview with Tim Zesch, COO of Sostrom Corporation, and an interview with Lynn Burkhart of Controlled Release Technologies. We're also going to have a roundup segment at the end of the show. We'd like to thank today's sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease's first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. To contact the show live by phone or text message, simply go to www.talkshoe.com website and follow directions to obtain a PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547. That's 1547. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer your questions and even take requests if you email us at info at ieqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Wow, Chris, we had a flurry of activity on the uh, trivia questions uh, today and, and last week. Lots of activity. Congratulations go out to Chad Seams of Shive Hattery for the first correct answer to the automatic fire sprinkler trivia question. And congratulations also go out to Dan Reed of Intuitive Environmental Solutions for answering the dust component question. Well, this... Well, this week we'd like to put a couple of new questions in play. Uh, question number one. Grace Kelly, one of America's best loved and most famous actresses, also known as Princess Grace of Monaco, I'd like to know what she was selling in her first TV commercial. What was Grace selling in her first TV commercial? The next question is really a three-part trivia question. We're going to have a musical component, uh, and we're looking for you to... To, we're looking for you to do three things. Number one, we want you to name the song. Number two, we want you to name the composer. Number three, we want you to name the 1979 movie in which the music was prominent. Chris, the clue.
great movie for those of you that have seen it. Okay, uh, Chris, we have music for our first guest. suitable music for someone in the preservation business. The Strostrom Corporation has distinguished itself as a major producer and supplier of industrial biocide products worldwide for more than 20 years. They're devoted to protecting materials from unfavorable environmental influences. The company continues to expand with the development of an environmental care product line for use by the professional pest management, indoor air quality, mold prevention, remediation, and restoration industry professionals. Our guest this morning or this afternoon, Tim Zesch, the Chief Operating Officer for Strostrom Corporation, has served in several capacities at Strostrom Corporation and its Paris com parent company, Sipcam Agro. Tim has managed the sales, marketing, and development for chemical control products in various markets. Specifically, Tim has managed the business related to turf and ornamental products, agricultural crop protection products, and industrial biocides, such as dry film paint preservatives, wood treatment chemicals, and industrial deodorizers. Sostrom Corporation has recently established itself as the Dirty Jobs Done Right company, providing clean solutions to the dirty problems in the pest management industry. Sostrom believes that the same product line has certain interesting features and benefits for the indoor air quality, mold remediation, mold prevention, and restoration marketplaces. Okay, Tim, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. I guess Thank my you for the introduction there, uh, Cliff. I appreciate it, and uh, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you. My first question is, what organisms are actually destructive to paints and adhesives and coatings? Well, that's a great question, and at Sostrom we've been tackling these type of problems for many years in our dry film uh, paint preservative biocide product line. There's a wide variety of fungal organisms that will attack exterior house paints and interior house paints and for years paint manufacturers have included biocides into their paints to prevent those fungal organisms from essentially effacement of the finished product. Everybody wants the paint to not only look good right when it's placed onto a home or a, a commercial building but they want it to last for some time so most of the fungal organisms are not foreign to people that are in the indoor air quality business. I mean fungal organisms such as aspergillus and penicillium and uh, gladiosporids. Those are the type of fungal organisms that attack paints and coatings both in interior and exterior applications. And those are the type of organisms that most paint manufacturers are trying to prevent from getting onto their painted surface. Well, what mechanisms do these organisms use to damage the paint or in what ways do they damage the materials? Generally speaking, the superficial mold and mildew is, is essentially more of a cosmetic issue in the paints and coatings industry. They will uh, essentially make new paint look like old paint. At the end of the day, uh, they might face it by discoloration, be that black or brown or even green mold and algae that will want to grow on the painted film surface is uh, very undesirable if you're a paint manufacturer, especially if you're trying to warranty the performance of your paint, and especially if you're trying to set yourself apart from other paint products that may not have as good of a uh, performance, if you will, in terms of years of, of service. And in common retail of, of paints and coatings, you'll see um, at any common retailer, you may see paints that last for, uh, you know, have a 10 or 15 year warranty. Some of them may not have any warranty at all, and the difference is usually in terms of the ingredients that the paint manufacturers put in there, including preservatives such as biocides. How have the, how's the preservation chemistry changed uh, over the years? I mean, is, is it gotten more hazardous? Has it gotten safer? Can you just, you know, briefly 
kind of tell us, you know, what some of, you know, where some of the changes have occurred in over past years? Uh, certainly, Cliff. That's a great question. And uh, at the end of the day, these are regulated industries that we participate in. Most of the products that Saucer Corporation has had in our line for the last 20 years have been EPA regulated, or if we've been selling them in foreign uh, countries, most, at least, um, countries regulate biocides that are used in paints and coatings. So to answer your question is, in general, biocide products have been under a lot of scrutiny, and they've been uh, been getting safer over the years as more companies regulate um, products for safety, environmental profile. Um, specifically, there's been a lot of an attempt to reduce the amount of active ingredients and aggregate going out into the environment. So products that have lower pounds per gallon, if you will, or, or pounds of active ingredient per um, gallon of paint, those types of biocides have been in favor against the larger AI or larger pounds per gallon products that have been used over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. So the products that win today are the ones that are, have low use rates and have sound, uh, safe environmental profile. You know, by AI, for our listeners, that I suspect is active ingredient, correct? That's, that's correct. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, well, one of the things that happens is we have an acronym police, and, you know, sometimes they catch us, but he was busy, uh, you know, typing in, in someone correctly answered the trivia question, so that's that's great. Who got it there? Original Saint, nice job, nice job. The the musical three part one is is still out there. Well, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, building materials and what organisms may have an adverse effect on on building materials such as you know paper, wood, stuff like that. Okay, very well. Although um, there are some fairly notorious fungal organisms that a lot of people are probably familiar with, like Stachybotrys and these type of uh, fungal organisms, those are not by far the most prevalent. There are literally thousands of different kinds of superficial mold and mildews that may grow on building materials, and it depends on the environment, the region of the country, and the nature of the substrate, which um, dictates a lot of times how, which fungal organisms you'll encounter. But as a generality, superficial mold and mildew fungi, although for the most part oh, they're not that toxic, if you will, or that uh, threatening, they really have a detrimental effect on the aesthetics and the value of the uh, substrate in which they infest. And to a large extent, we don't um, concern ourselves dramatically over which fungi might position themselves on building materials. We try and use broad-spectrum fungal, fungal uh, inhibitors that would stop the majority of those type of fungi from occurring on, on the, any given uh, treated substrate. Well, going back to these organisms, would uh, insects cohabitate with some of these fungal and bacterial organisms? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, to some extent, there we've uh, uncovered some symbiotic relationships where insects might even um, thrive in areas where there's fungus that they may enjoy eating for dinner. Mm-hmm. So it, it, they go hand in glove in many, many occasions. How can these building materials be protected? And what I'd like you to do is comment, uh, I guess, both on built-in protection and topical protection, if you would. Well, that's a great question, and it is kind of a Pandora's box-type question when you look at all the different building materials that are out there and whether those materials will be used indoors or outdoors or whether those materials will be um, preserved in any capacity by the manufacturer or if they're raw commodities that will be installed in a house with absolutely no original manufacturer protection. And uh, there's, you know, there's a wide gamut of things, for instance, on a major building component like wood, wood that's used a lot of times on the exterior application may be pressure treated at the mill and sent out um, predisposed to be able to withstand the exposures that it will come in contact with, like in-ground contact or if it's outside, obviously, it's going to be uh, open to a lot of rain and moisture and insect pressure. So many times those will be preserved at the mill, whereas wood that's used on a framing package oftentimes is just raw cut dimensional lumber with no preservatives on it whatsoever. Same may be true with sheetrock and other building components. There's really not much in the way of preservatives against insect or fungal attack. And so um, depending on what type of substrate you're trying to protect and what, what your ultimate goal is, there's a myriad of options of how to uh, approach protection on those types of substrates. Some, some people may use a simple paint and coating to preserve um, and protect against water infiltration and water penetration. 
Others may choose to use biocidal remedies or preservative remedies to preserve um, the substrates, and that's kind of where Sostrom Corporation comes in in terms of offering uh, a full line of both uh, rotten decay and surface mold and mildew prevention materials. Do you get involved at all with blue stain or sap stain treatment of, you know, fresh-cut lumber? Absolutely. That's one of the uh, markets we have uh, a very complementary product line for. We have um, customers of ours that do treat lumber um, at a fresh cut stage where that lumber may be dried in either mechanical kiln drying or air drying and sap stain fungi. There's a large variety of those type fungi, but they particularly like to inhabit uh, freshly sawn lumber. And, of course, uh, freshly sawn lumber that gets sap stain fungi will not be very marketable when it lands at a, at a retail store like a Home Depot or Lowe's or somebody like that. So a lot of times uh, people that will dry their lumber will try and use preservatives just to keep the um, effacement of superficial mold and mildew from being able to establish themselves onto those types of materials before they're ever delivered into the distribution channel. You know, while we're on this subject, um, I'd like to just kind of ex explore it a little bit deeper. In the mold remediation and new construction industry, there's a term called lumberyard mold, and, and, it, and certain lumberyards are going to store their lumber outside. It's going to be in the weather, and in certain situations, it can have visible fungal contamination, and this ends up being a problem, particularly for a builder who you know, ends up putting this in a house and, you know, the, the homeowner sees it and now they're worried about an infestation of mold in, in their home. Uh, I, I guess I wanted to go back to this sap stain uh, or blue stain treatment. If that is done to the wood when it's fresh cut, does that treatment protect it against this type of lumberyard mold or is that a different organism altogether? Well, one of the interesting developments we've seen in terms of uh, our understanding of this industry as we get into it more and more, there's some disconnects between the ownership and custody of the wood in different portions of the channel of trade. And um, it's not a, uh, I'm not trying to rain comment on or, uh, or other than just give perspective on some of the things we've discovered. What we find out is the big manufacturers, when they turn it over a lot of times to the lumber yard, they kind of wash their hands from the, their responsibility in terms of delivering it under certain conditions and certain wood moisture content and certain uh, aesthetics, if you will, in terms of, of uh, acceptability. But once it handles, uh, once it changes custody into the hands of distribution, a lot of different things may occur to that wood that you adequately pointed out. Sometimes lumber yards have the ability to store the wood under um, cover and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they deliver the, the wood out to a, a construction site where it's framed within, you know, an immediate context. Sometimes it may sit on the lumber yard on the side of the construction project for a month or two months or even longer, and it's subject to getting moisture and rain and uh, all kinds of humidity onto the wood. So there is a, a chain of custody issue that does occur, and um, that's where a lot of the problems occur. And you're, you're right, a lot of wood, before it ever gets put into a job site, may already have significant um, fungal growth on it at the onset. And it's, an, it's a problem that we have a portfolio of products to address. But that is something that uh, uh, homeowners and builders are going to be faced with, I think, more in the future, as more people are aware that these issues occur in the supply chain, that um, you know there's, there's only a limited number of things you can do to actually stop this phenomenon from occurring. Is there one organism in particular that's most destructive to wood? You know, would it be insects or? Actually, that's a great question. And a lot of people often uh, believe that mold and mildew is, is destructive. And for the most part, mold and mildew in and of itself does not um, reduce the weight of the, of the substrate. It's more of a cosmetic or a superficial and, of course, the and the things that come off of superficial mold and mildew colonization is not good for, for, uh, for a variety of reasons. The organisms that are more concerning to Sawstrom Corporation are the fungal decay organisms that can actually start to infest and inhabit uh, wood of any sort. And um, we believe that when you start talking about things like rot and decay that can actually affect the structural integrity of the wood, then you have a real problem that could um, lead to a much more costly repair or much more open-ended liability on the end of uh, either uh, be it a builder or a homeowner that, or a, a tenant that is exposed to a structure that may not be sound anymore. Hmm. 
you know, generically speaking, how do these treatment chemistries actually work to protect wood? Is there a couple of specific ways that it works? Yeah, actually, it again, kind of depending on what um, you're trying to accomplish in terms of uh, which chemistry you might choose or which organism you're trying to uh, either inhibit or in some cases actually control after you've got a problem, there's different techniques for, uh, for treating different substrate. Again, we mentioned the example of pressure-treated wood where they'll use preservatives to pre-treat, if you will, before, at the mill before the wood ever gets into the uh, channels of distribution. In those cases, it's maybe fairly easy to pressure treat in either a large uh, tank where you could put a whole bundle of wood in there and, and push uh, chemicals into the wood under pressure, um, and that is often the way that uh, decking and those type of materials are treated. Once it gets into the distribution channel, though, like raw lumber gets into the distribution channel and it's assembled into a house, if you will, in a framing package, you're, you're relegated to more options of uh, topical sprays and um, applications that can be done post-construction, if you will, and that's where our portfolio really shines. Our products are addressed to be applied with either a backpack sprayer or a pump-up sprayer, garden sprayer, and you can actually spray uh, wood as a substrate right from um, right from the point of the house being actually framed in the new construction, or you can even inject it into the walls of existing construction. What, you know, every product is going to have two sides. You're going to have the, the plus side, and you're going to have the side that's, you know, not necessarily that good that we might refer to as, as the downside. You know, what would the downside be of these products, such as odor, toxicity, uh, allergenicity, uh, et cetera? I tell you, uh, that's a great question, Cliff, and it's one that we get asked about a lot in terms of uh, risks and benefits and um, the reward um, perspectives in terms of why, why should I be compelled to use these or why would I want to use these in the house. And a lot of times it comes down to a simple pushback of cost. It does cost more to um, treat uh, wood or treat your house, and that's really the biggest issue that the kind of behind the behind the walls and out of sight, out of mind is something that some people uh, have have believed for years that, you know, it's not something I see, it's, you know, what I don't know won't hurt me type of an issue. But when it comes down to uh, knowing what really is going on and that the fact is that there's alternatives you can use to stop mold and mildew and rot and decay and termites from getting into wood, it kind of comes down to a cost proposition. Is it worth the effort to uh, to put these compounds into the house or is it not? And in terms of the safety and the toxicity, I think we uh, have done things right in terms of bringing our products to market. We've run these products through uh, vigorous testing. We've uh, proved the safety profile. We've submitted to the uh, EPA, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, that actually monitors these type of compounds. And they've also done a separate you know, risk versus benefit uh, kind of concept, if you will, to make sure that the chemistries are safe and that they're valid for the intended use that we have on our label. And again, they establish law, if you will, that says these compounds are safe if they're used in this capacity, if they're used in this manner. And therefore, having an EPA registration should give peace of mind to anybody that wants to use these type of compounds in their homes, in their domiciles, um, that they're not, they don't have to just take our word for it as a manufacturer, but there has been independent review of these compounds for these independent uh, use patterns. You know, why do some formulations stay on the surface of wood while others penetrate deeply? Is that a function of pressure, a function of volume, a function of chemistry, all the above, none of the above? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is a function of most of those items you just discussed. At the end of the day, the biggest driving factor is the nature of the molecule itself. And the two of the molecules that we offer actually have two different natures, if you will. Our surface mold and mildew compound has a tenacity to, uh, has a tendency to be very tenacious when it hits a wood substrate and it binds immediately to that substrate, which makes it efficacious as a superficial mold and mildew inhibitor because you almost can't make it go into the wood even if you try. And the other technology that we use for rot and decay actually has a tendency to go into the wood very easily, penetrating over time deeply into the wood, at, which essentially is where rotten decays are going to occur. It's, rotten decay is not a superficial um, 
uh, organism on, and on the substrate like wood, it actually is incurring interior inside the wood. And because we have that dual mode of action with two of our different chemistries, we can proudly say that we stop not only the superficial mold and mildew, but also the rotten decay that actually occurs inside the wood. And yeah. you can deliver those in a kind of a tank mix application so you get the best of both worlds, if you will. Well, I, w- I want to go back and, and kind of just explore that a little bit more. I think, I think what I heard you say is that one of the, the, the penetration treatment, the one that penetrates better, uh, I guess it penetrates after the wood's dry, correct? Or after the, the, I'm sorry, after the material's dry. That's right. And the technology that we use in that particular product is a borate technology. Borates have been around for, you know, 60, 70 years and commercial use patterns as wood preservatives. And borates are very well known for their ability to preserve wood. And they're also very well known for the ability to move into wood as a substrate. Um, commercial treaters oftentimes will use borates on specific wood pattern that might be used in a house, like for sill plates, if you will, that may come in contact with either water, um, moisture, and or insects as a um, both a rotten decay preventer and a termite preventer, if you will, um, for literally for decades. And essentially what you're telling me is this isn't going to wash out. So essentially if it got wet again, it, the protection kind of stays there. Well, borate, uh, you asked earlier about kind of strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the, the strength of a borate is that it will penetrate deeply into the wood with moisture. If there was ever a situation where it was flooded for a prolonged period of time or come into contact with an extreme amount of water, that could be an Achilles heel of, of borates over a long period of time. Uh, borates may actually wash out of wood if it was using an exterior application. On an exterior application, if you were going to treat your, your deck, if you will, or like a fencing or something like that, if you will, uh, our, our label would say once you put the borate into the wood as a substrate, you would do well to put a, a water repellent sealing, a sealant or a paint over the top of that wood to kind of keep the borate in there and keep it from rinsing, uh, leaching out as easily. So it depends on this, the use pattern. Most of the time in houses, you're not going to have a, a flood, if you will, for a prolonged period of time. You might have minor water events or elevated uh, humidity over a period of time, but most of the time you're not going to have a flood for a prolonged period of time. You know, are these restricted-use pesticides, and, and what is a restricted-use pesticide? Uh, actually, uh, Cliff, that's a great question. Our products are not restricted-use. They're general-use pesticides. Um, to give you uh, kind of a big-picture idea of what that means, these type of products can and in some cases are sold at retail stores like Home Depot for general use by, uh, by the general population, if you will. Now, most of the time, our products are used by commercial applicators, so we choose to market them through people who um, use these in service-oriented professions for the most part, but they are general-use products, and they um, don't have any restrictions in terms of of, uh, restricted use, per se. Now, restricted-use compounds are those compounds, uh, if I understand this situation correctly, where the EPA has decided that there are some inherent uh, issues with using these compounds where they want to make sure that people who are only trained to use those compounds safely and efficaciously are uh, entitled to buy them. Therefore, a restricted use compound, you'd have to have a license to actually go and acquire the compound and to apply them commercially. So those are a different set of compounds than what we have. For instance, in our crop protection chemis- chemical division that we have, we do have some products that are restricted use and only licensed applicators can acquire those. You know, what's in, you know, what I think is somewhat strange about it is that I could purchase from you one of your biocidal products for addition to a coating or a paint or an adhesive, and I don't have to be a, a licensed uh, pesticide applicator in order to buy that, nor do I need to have the license in order to add it to my product. And in many cases, these products, you know, can be pretty serious in terms of, um, you know, they're, because they're highly concentrated and, and only a little bit would actually be needed to preserve a product, it would seem that, you know, sometimes the government gets these things a little backwards. Well, there are some provisions that protect treated articles, and it is somewhat of a gray area we've learned in this indoor air quality arena. Uh, we do see people that make paints and coatings with uh, biocides in them, sell them, and and kind of carefully dance around in the gray area of not making a claim specifically. They 
say that we they use uh, ingredients in their products, but their products aren't specifically registered. We think that that's wrong per se for companies to be able to do that, where they subtly make claims but don't actually make claims. We, of course, as we mentioned already, you know, take the high road of going to the EPA and registering our products on, from the onset. But in terms of the loophole, the if you will, and I think that's what you're referring to, treated articles. Uh, it's it's it makes a lot of sense to not have to have the article itself uh, be a registered compound in terms of like pressure treated wood, for instance. The wood itself isn't uh, uh, pressure treated uh, and and licensed, if you will, to have to be uh, licensed or, or permitted to buy wood that's been treated. The article itself has been preserved, um, and you wouldn't have to go buy that product, you know, have special training to buy a product that's been preserved. And what happens, uh, you know, like in the case of the Home Depot and that, those products that you would buy there at a retail store, they have been adequately preserved by people who are in the know how to preserve those products with EPA-registered products. And I'm not sure if that makes uh, perfectly clear sense to you, but I do believe that there is an appropriate uh, place for a treated article exemption, but those those products should only be used by people making the products and making those products preserve, preserve the product itself, not specific claims downstream. Okay. What type of insurance would you recommend? Is there a special type of insurance that you might recommend for, let's say, a mold remediation company or a cleaning company? company or a general contractor who might be applying these products either following a water damage or as part of a new construction treatment? There is insurance out there specific for, um, you know, remediation professionals and, and prevention professionals, and we do have that question come up a lot. A lot of times uh, pest management uh, professionals will have insurance that helps them cover, you know, applying pesticides professionally for service on termites or on insects of other nature and um, a lot of times we find out those particular uh, policies do not specifically cover mold and mildew or uh, prevention or remediation so it's uh, it's, a, it's a very um, I guess specific proposition although those insurance policies are out there uh, we do we can if you go to our website or if you contact us directly we can connects you with companies that do offer those type of services, but it kind of depends on each company, uh, making sure that they're uh, comfortable with the with the insurance that they have for the type of services that, that they're going to provide. You know, I think in many situations, it's the words that we use in order to describe what we're doing that can either get us into trouble or keep us out of trouble. Do you have any specific language regarding the products? Would preservative be the right name? Would treatment be the right thing? Would pesticide be the right thing? Would, you know, insecticide or fungicide, you know, what, what, would, what terminology should we be using and what terminology shouldn't we be using? Well, that's a great question, Cliff, and we have uh, heard the uh, whole array of, of comments of how companies do it. And we do believe some companies are doing it right in terms of offering preservation. Some people uh, stay away from even words like mold for obvious uh, liability reasons. They'll use fungal treatments, and I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of uh, offering fungal preservation or fungal treatments as opposed to uh, hitting on topics of mold specifically because people always get excited about the liability and the potential that uh, of, of uh, the Pandora's box you open when you start talking about getting into the mold business. So a mold is a fungus, and um, we, we do believe that fungal treatments are adequate. We also do provide somewhat of a non-endorsed contract. If there's service professionals out there that want to look at a, a non-endorsed kind of contract that some of our applicators use to offer these type of services, we do provide it. We don't um, say that this is how we do business. We say this is how some companies that work with us do business, and it seems to work well for them. And that's the that's the right approach. I mean, you got to be careful offering warranties on these type of services because there are fiduciary duties that are required by any homeowner or property owner. They can't have a fungal treatment there and then let their house flood and stay flooded for months and expect products to work forever and for um, indefinite periods of time. So those type of provisions need to be in the service contract offered by any company in these businesses. You know, speaking of warranty, I mean, you, you brought up the issue. Would it be, I mean, is, is that something, it would seem that it's a benefit. It would be something that 
you know, might be the difference if one company offered a warranty on the service and one company didn't. First of all, does your company, Sostrom, do you have any type of warranty that you offer, uh, you know, on, on the product after it's been applied? At this point in time, we offer, the warranties we offer are specific to termite control where we have uh, EPA registration for termite uh, treatments and new construction, and we do offer a warranty that goes along with that. In terms of the mold and mildew prevention and rotten decay prevention, at this time we have not offered a warranty because we have not required our applicators to use our products in any specific use pattern per se. We don't say you have to treat the whole house. We don't say you have to treat, you know, this portion of the house or wet areas. We don't even, for that matter, you know, specifically prohibit our products from being used indoors and outdoors. And what we have offered is really good technologies for service-oriented professionals to kind of use as tools in their toolbox. And different professionals, we learn, you know, have different comfort levels of what they believe is a reasonable uh, approach, both with in terms of the service they provide, the fiduciary duty that the homeowner or the business owner is going to have uh, for the period of, of time, and also for the price and the uh, percentage of the area that they're going to treat. So there's a lot of moving parts there. Uh, different companies approach it different ways, and uh, we have a lot of great testimonials, people that we believe are doing it right right now that we can uh, certainly provide examples for um, any companies that are interested in doing this type of business. Yeah. Is there any difference between a new construction treatment and a post-water remediation treatment? And would there be any pre-treatments made, such as a cleaner or, or some other type of sanitizing agent prior to application of your product? That's uh, a great question, Cliff. And, and indeed, um, new construction has been one of our key focus targets with this technology namely because in new construction there's a phase in the construction process where you can get at all the wood and all the behind the walls before the sheetrock is hung, if you will. So there's a, it's a very simple, straightforward application, and we have uh, promoted that very vigorously to the, um, to the market in terms of pretreatment options for both surface mold and mildew and rotten decay prevention. And it can be done at the same time as some of the termite pretreatments are done in the southern U.S., where by law you have to do a termite pretreatment. You can actually use our mold and mildew inhibitors and our rotten decay inhibitors at the same time frame in the new construction phase. Now, our products are also labeled for and approved for use in, in both remediation and in restoration. Uh, after a mold cleanup per se, you could use our products to keep mold and mildew rotten decay from returning. And to answer your final question, yes, in terms of uh, if there is mold and mildew on the substrate before the uh, application is made. Our labels will suggest that you use some type of uh, mold remediation technique to remove the mold, whether that's physical or chemical remediation of the mold prior to the application of our preventive materials. Um, you know, we don't have one today in our line, but there's obviously a lot of products out there, quaternary ammonium compounds and oxidizers that can be used to remove the mold and mildew prior to the prevention applications. Well, before we conclude your, I guess, this, this first segment of your interview, I always like to ask our guests two questions. First of all, were there any questions that I didn't ask you that you would like to comment on? Anything I missed in the interview? Well, actually, uh, the one topic that I think that may be of interest to, uh, to your audience that separates our offering from a lot of the other offerings that are out there is is when we offer a preservative system, it is truly the biocide itself. We don't, for the most part, promote uh, the use of our chemistries for these type of use patterns embedded into a paint or a coating. What we're offering is the biocide treatment itself, and we think there is some building science merit to that. We don't disrupt the wood as a substrate. We don't disrupt the wood's ability to respire water on interior wood. So. If you put our preservatives on the wood in a framing package, if you will, of a house, it doesn't impede the uh, moisture from coming in or out of that wood, and our biocides give the protection without creating a film that may have some negative attributes in terms of building science. Gotcha. How can our listeners get further information uh, from, from you? Do you want to give your website or your phone number? And Certainly. Our uh, website is the same as our company name. It's www.sostram.com. It's S-O-S-T-R-A-M.com. 
and that will also link you to our MoldRAM website, which has got more of the information about surface mold and mildew prevention, both alone and with borates. And that website is www.moldram.com. It's M-O-L-D-R-A-M.com. And all of the labels, MSDS, and literature are available at those websites. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Please hang on. We're going to bring you back at the end uh, for our roundup. Okay. Our next guest is Lynn Burkhart, and Lynn is the founder and president of Controlled Release Technologies, Inc. Lynn started his career in the late 1960s, working with a team on power plant design and installation at utilities across the Midwest and Central USA, specializing in high-purity water systems and corrosion abatement. In 1985, he developed a proprietary high-purity water system for NASA, as Space Shuttle. A short while later, while consulting at Disney in Orlando, the HVAC heating, ventilation, and air conditioning service personnel requested Lynn's assistance in resolving a problem they were having with condensate pan overflows. Lynn put together a research team and developed a unique polymer-based technology that allowed for continuous time-release detergent to handle the problem. This product called PanGuard has become the industry leader in preventing condensate pan overflows and was the first product manufactured by Controlled Release Technologies, which was founded by Lynn in 1986. In the mid-90s, Lynn patented First Strike Micro Coat, an innovative energy-saving product for the HVAC industry. Under Lynn's direction, CRT research and development laboratories have developed a comprehensive and synergistic line of solutions for economic and efficient HVAC maintenance. Lynn, are you there? And thanks for joining us. I am. You're welcome, and good afternoon to you. Okay. Well, first of all, what is a condensate pan? Well, the condensate pan is present in uh, all air conditioning systems that... uh, and it is actually the uh, collection uh, pan, if you will, that uh, sits underneath of a cooling coil, which, of course, uh, you know, condenses uh, moisture from the atmosphere, and it's collected in the condensate pan. Of what materials are condensate pans normally constructed? Condensate pans uh, historically have been made out of uh, galvanized metal, and uh, in recent years there's been... Uh, kind of a movement to go to plastic, although, uh, you know, for corrosion purposes, but uh, that hasn't really tend to work out too well. Why is that? Well, the, the uh, plastic uh, tends to crack see. Uh, in service after a while. Uh, a lot of the air conditioning systems uh, uh, are subject to uh, vibration during operation, and uh, you know, that uh, vibration eventually could cause uh, stress cracking in the plastics. Uh, as one reason, another thing is that the uh, interior of the air conditioning systems, uh, and we're talking here more of the small systems than the large ones, uh, they uh, usually have some type of a heating element, which, again, uh, you know, heats up the whole area in there, and that might cause some problems, too. Okay. Um, what are the common problems of condensate pans? I mean, can they physically cause damage to building materials? Can they adversely affect indoor air quality? You know, if so, how? There's a really a multitude of uh, problems that everyone finds with these things. Uh, um, they're really a necessary evil in a way. Um, the building owner himself, when you get into commercial buildings, finds that over a period of years the uh, condensate pan uh, corrodes, and uh, then uh, they eventually get uh, pinholes uh, in the uh, pan. And of course, at that point, uh, that usually takes place after about 10 years, maybe less, maybe more. But at that point in time, they have uh, usually are looking at replacing the entire unit. Uh, because of the expense, uh, the expense of replacing the pan. So that's one area. The other area that it causes problems is, is that um, the pan actually collects condensate that uh, comes off the cooling coils, 
and the water uh, coming off the coin coils is generally impacted uh, in the airstream with uh, micron-sized particulates, which eventually wind up in the condensate pan. And uh, while these particulates don't appear to be uh, something to be concerned with, when you consider that you have uh, around a million cubic feet of air a day, even on a small uh, unit, um, eventually over a period of months, uh, you know, the buildup becomes quite substantial and can cause pan overflows and property damage and what have you. Can you tell us how your solution for condensate pans works? Well, the... Um, what you have here uh, in the condensate pan is a dynamic system. I mean, things are going on continuously. If you attempt to put in a, uh, you know, it's kind of a misconception of a lot of people if they put in a, uh, when they look in the pans, they find uh, slime or microbial uh, activity in the pans. Uh, you know, some people call it biological soup. and. Uh, you know, some people might feel that you, if you add an antimicrobial in there to kill this, this would handle your problems. But um, actually, the majority of the particulates entering into the uh, air conditioner are not uh, microbial in nature, but just plain dirt. So uh, to handle the uh, problem, what you really need to have is a... Uh, a product that uh, is a dispersant to take these small particles as they enter in and prevent them from settling out in the pan and so they are continuously going down the drain. Well, I, I guess what I was looking for is, you know, they have these like rhino coatings that I guess now they, they put on the vehicles. It, it seemed to me from reading the literature that you have some sort of solution which works like that for these pans that are in bad, oh. bad condition and so on. So how does that work? Oh, sure. Um, that's another aspect of the, of the, of handling condensate pans. There's so many uh, uh, things that do occur. One of them, the corrosion aspect uh, is, is one. Another one is the biological activity and the dirt buildup. Um, you know, it's kind of a complicated question, but we do have a product that we uh, manufacture for condensate pans to uh, prevent uh, corrosion from occurring on the pan surfaces. And as a matter of fact, that serves a multitude of purposes. One of them is that uh, not only does it protect the pan from uh, uh, corrosion, but it also uh, self-levels the pan so there are no areas of uh, pools of water in there that could stagnate and develop microbial growth. So I think I've seen it at a trade show. It almost looked like plastic or something. I, I, you know, oh, that's true. That product, you'd be amazed how much uh, polymer science went in. Fortunately, at our company, we have a PhD in uh, polymer science. and. Uh, you know, that product is called Pancrete. Of course, it's, a, uh, it's easily used. It, it, it gets poured into the pans, and that's why it self-levels. But some of the other properties of that product is um, it, uh, it uh, um, is very corrosive uh, resistant to chemicals. And, you know, um, coil, coil cleaning is another huge uh, uh, thing that causes corrosion on, uh, on condensate pans. And uh, this product is totally resistant to coil cleaners. So uh, basically, if the, by the time the whole unit uh, collapses, uh, the only thing left in there is probably going to be the pancreas. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned coils, and that's just where I want to take uh, the next line of questioning. What purpose do these coils play in an HVAC system, and why do you have to clean them and maintain them? Well, the coils, uh, you can consider the coils to be almost as vital as a person's heart. Um, if those coils aren't kept clean, the uh, efficiency, in other words, how well, how much energy you're going to use as a building owner or indeed a house owner to run your uh, H HVAC system is going to uh, increase by up to 20%. Uh, uh, and that's uh, based on studies done by various universities. So keeping these coils clean is uh, not only important for efficiency, 
but also uh, it does have influence on indoor air quality in buildings. What are the common, most common misconceptions about coil cleaning? Well, I think one of the things that really kind of perturbs me a lot on coil cleaning, uh, you know, because we do, of course, manufacture uh, that as well, but, you know, uh, and also being in chemistry, you know, we have a tendency to go out to the, the contractors have a tendency to go buy coil cleaners, and they'll see uh, someone's coil cleaner, and it'll say, uh, quote, non-acid, unquote. And uh, I think it gives people the false impression that uh, a non-acid cleaner is basically safe to use on their equipment and they don't have to rinse it. However, if, if you, most people wouldn't do that, but if you went to the uh, handbook uh, from the American Society of Metals, you will see that the corrosion rate on uh, aluminum, for an example, uh, takes a, a shape of like a horseshoe and at lower pHs the, uh, is just as aggressive uh, at, at higher pH as it is at lower pH. So when you get up in the alkaline materials, which are non-acid, you experience the same or more corrosion than you might with an acid cleaner. So. Do you have a preferred method um, or recommended method that you would use to have the coils cleaned in, in your building, for instance? How would you do it? Um, well, I use a common sense like most of the guys do. There are a few... Um, while there's a multitude of ways to not do the coil cleaning properly, there's a certain basic scientific things that you know. One of these is that um, when you're cleaning coils, you need to have, uh, you know, a uh, high temperatures are going to work better. So uh, if you have hot water, it's better than cold water. If you have a steam jenny or some device that uh, generates uh, higher temperature water, that's going to be better. Um, and you're going to have to use uh, probably if coils dirty. Uh, I think the the even though you're going to get some corrosion, you're probably better off using a, a highly alkaline cleaner uh, with hot water and let let it sit there for a while, and then make sure you rinse it extremely thoroughly. And that would be true of all coil cleaners. Thank you for that. Um, what's biological fouling? Well, that's uh, pretty prevalent in HVAC systems, and it just refers to uh, the growth of um, microbes on surfaces, and uh, that happens pretty readily in an HVAC system where you have a dark and damp uh, environment, and that's quite suitable for microbial growth. And so uh, you, you can uh, get a lot of biological growth, for an example, not only in the uh, condensate pan and get on the coils and frequently uh, it occurs within the uh, internal insulation of units which are is by the way quite difficult to get out once it's in there you know I, I, I'm aware that certain microorganisms actually deteriorate metals and I know this happens underwater and in ships and, and so on and so forth I wonder you know if it occurs in these places why wouldn't it occur in an HVAC system well, it really does. Um, it does occur in the HVAC system. It, you know, there's a whole field of uh, microbiology-induced uh, uh, corrosion is one aspect. Another aspect would be what we call differential aeration, where you have, uh, let's say, a mass of uh, biological material in a condensate pan, which is uh, covering the pan up and precluding oxygen from there. And then some other part of the pan might have oxygen there, so you have the differential you know, set up so you can get corrosion. So, uh, yeah, it does occur there. But I'll tell you, um, the biggest thing really with, uh, that I found with uh, HVAC system over the last 20 years has been the improper use of uh, coil cleaners, people uh, putting them on and walking, especially people that don't have a vested interest in the, uh, in the system. And I've actually seen in a large hospital in Florida that was like 12 rows deep on the coil where I put my finger in and I went right through the aluminum coils down four rows deep, which is probably three to four inches at least was just the metal was just disintegrated. Wow. So it's, it's a pretty serious problem. What scale and where does it form in an HVAC system and can you remove it or prevent it from happening? Scale is not present in HVAC systems uh, because the actual condensate is like distilled water. So there wouldn't be any scale. 
in water treatment terms, which we classify scale there as they, like calcium or carbonate or magnesium compounds, whatever. You don't really see that. Now, if you went up north, for an example, if you were in uh, your area around Pittsburgh, you might see that people use uh, uh, ancillary uh, humidification in the winter months to add humidifier. You know, things. So they might have actually water, city water spray or well water spray uh, prior to the coils, and they'll, uh, you know, spray this water to uh, add humidity. Now, in those cases, when the water evaporates, evaporates any minerals in the system will, uh, in the water will, of course, uh, deposit on the coils. But um, outside of a few places up in the northeast or in the north, that's not a common issue. What's your opinion on the use of ultraviolet lights in HVAC systems? Are you pro, con, a little uh, bit of both? Again, I, I take like an engineering look at it. I, I don't, uh, you know, try make, not to make opinions unless I look at stuff. But uh, there are a few things about it. I think that if people know what the plus and minus points are, it, it would be good. A lot of people think that if they put it in, that's going to clean the air up and, uh, you know, the UV light, uh, which is basically disinfecting rays, you know, at a certain wavelength, um, that's similar to chemicals. In other words, it takes a certain amount of concentration and a certain amount of time in order to cause something to occur. Now, when you have air in an air system, the HVAC unit that's going through like four or 500 uh, cubic feet a minute, the residence time of what's in the air um, when it's in front of the light is so fractionally marginal that, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, you could say that the, the what's in the air doesn't get doesn't even bothered by the UV light. But um, if you have a UV light in an air handler and the surfaces are close enough to it, one could say that you might see uh, reduction in uh, in activity on the surface when using the UV light in that, and that's about all you're going to expect. Well, you can't. You can also uh, ultraviolet lights. Uh, you know, when you put them, use them, and think your coils are going to get kept clean. You have to remember that light travels in straight lines, and and so that if you don't have your, uh, you know, if there's even the smallest uh, angular deflection from the uh, parallelism of the the fins, that you're not really going to get much penetration. And so that it's, you're kind of fooling yourself if you're gonna, you think you're gonna, your coils are gonna maintain themselves free of uh, biofilms, you know. Lynn, before we uh, go to the roundup, I've got a couple questions that I always like to ask everyone that I interview. Number one, is there anything that I forgot to ask or that you would like to add to the interview? Um, well, yeah, I would have to say one thing in general. I mean, there's a lot of specifics, but. I think the, the thing that people really need to know, and this uh, not only involves uh, commercial uh, buildings but residential, is that, that there, are, there can be health-related problems in HVAC systems. It, it doesn't have to be, and it isn't uh, way prevalent, but the best thing for people to do to, is to have some type of a continual program for hygiene in their systems. and. Uh, because not the least of which for uh, health reasons that would be uh, to their betterment for uh, energy efficiency. Okay. All right. Uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Now it's time for the commercial. Well, all right. <laughs> uh, people can uh, get on our website at uh, www.cleanac.com. That's C-L-E-A-N dot C-L-E-A-N-A-C.com, and they're also going to call us at 800-766-9057. Well, thank you both. Uh, hang on. We're going to do our roundup, and I've got a couple questions for you. All right. Move them out, hit them up, hit them up, move them out, hit them up, grow high. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, cut them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw. Raw 
Okay. Well, first question, and this one came from, I think, Original Saint, if I got it right. Uh, and I'm going to direct this one over to you, Lynn. And what, 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 uh, what the, the listener asks is, how can he know that the indoor air is clean? Any comments on that? How would well, we... I think for a um, homeowner, it, it's probably going to be kind of difficult. Uh, when you get into uh, people that specialize in that sort of thing, they generally will monitor the amount of, uh, for example, carbon dioxide in the uh, atmosphere in the house and compare it to what's outside. Um, they might measure formaldehyde. depends on if you've got, you know, uh, new carpeting. That's uh, another thing. You possibly might have uh, mold in your building or in your ductwork or air conditioner, which generates odors. I mean, those are all things. So um, I think that uh, I'm not really quite sure if there's a real easy answer to that. And uh, if I was really concerned about it, I'd probably be looking at maybe getting somebody in there that uh, is a specialist, uh, not just a cleaning contractor necessarily, but someone that does have some tools. You know, I can probably add a couple of things in there as well. A lot of indoor particular, a lot of indoor contaminants generally fall into three areas. You'd want to look at particulate. You would want to look at chemical emissions. You would also mm -hmm. want to look at uh, biologicals uh, as, as, as well. I've uh, got a couple other questions. We've got one from Louis Savalas. I hope I pronounced your, your question right. Uh, this one would be for Lynn. How often should the HVAC system be sanitized? Um, well, it depends if it's a commercial facility or a, a residential facility. Um, I, you know, when you're in a, industrial, a commercial industrial building, a lot of times you're going to pick up a lot of contamination and depending, you might see a lot of outside air that's contaminated. I, I, uh, I would probably recommend every quarter, every six months, and uh, that would just uh, involve going in with a... Uh, EPA registered uh, sanitizer and just uh, spraying down the, the surfaces in there, uh, and uh, and that's about what you're going to do as a you know as an end user. I think what I'm going to do. Lewis has a couple of other comments. One I'm going to read, and then the other one I think maybe we'll all take a crack at commenting on it. His comment mm -hmm. was rather than having all these products introduced to the materials for building. Uh, we should really concentrate our efforts on keeping moisture out, and I think that that's probably something that all of us uh, would agree upon. But this next comment that he made, I'll let each of you comment, and I think what we'll do is we'll go to Tim first. Uh, what, what the comment is is products should be used only when removal or remediation efforts are, are not possible. What's your take on that, Tim? Well, I think that, um, well, on, on both aspects there, uh, moisture management is critical, and our products are really just a tool to use in your moisture management uh, concepts, if you will. But if you uh, if you look at some of the topics we already touched on with regard to how uh, building materials are handled in terms of uh, new construction and and uh, when they're exposed to the environment, there's times both in construction phase and also in in houses when moisture levels fluctuate uh, dramatically even from you know rain events or condensation um, yeah, you know moisture that's in the house that you know preservatives can be used and deployed appropriately to help in those high uh, humidity or high level of moistures that that building materials are going to come in contact with and yes uh, certainly you know remediation has its, has its place but anybody that's got uh, lives in an area that's conducive for mold and mildew to grow Chances are that neighborhood is going to still have those, you know, high pressures for that even after a remediation job is done, unless it was just like a leaky pipe or something that was that was causing the moisture. But uh, certainly, there that, that that's a valid point that your listener made there, and uh, the the product shouldn't always be used, but there's times when they may be, you know, very much very much needed. Lynn, would you like to comment? And I'll read the question again. Product should be used only when removal or remediation efforts are, are not possible. Well, I, I don't think that's necessarily correct. I, I agree 100% with uh, Tim. Uh, I think it really is a two-phase practice here. Um, 
although a person obviously you'd want to try to keep the moisture up, it's obviously something that you might not necessarily be assured 100% that's going to happen. And to that end, you know, um, I would think that you want to not only preclude moisture if you can, but also use some type of a... Uh, Oh, a fungicidal protective coating. Uh, we have such a coating that is EPA registered, and uh, something like that is preventative measure because I certainly those two in combination are better than either one of those alone. And I think I'm probably going to agree with with both of you. I think number one, whether the treatments are done or not, really should be not a choice made by the indoor environmental professional. It probably should be left up to the customer. Some people want these things. Some people don't. Some people could certainly see the advantage of doing this during construction because it's much cheaper before things are closed in. It could be an insurance policy. And I would also add that no building is perfect. They all leak. And, uh, you know, so I would, again, agree with you guys in terms of pretreatment. My only concern would be, you know, to use something that's not going to adversely affect the, you know, performance of the building and the building science. I'd like to have one that would permit vapor to go through. Well, what I'd like to do is thank you both for joining us today. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back again in the future. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Links to IAQ Radio are available at iaqtraining.com and unsmoke.com web pages. If you're interested in American Indoor Air Quality Council certified training or customized training programs, please visit the iaqtraining.com website or contact joe.use at iaqtraining.com. This is Cliff Slotnick or the Z-Man. Uh, saying thank you to our guests, my co-host today, uh, the wingman, Chris Boisel, but most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 